Welcome to Misalign. Today I have Jesse Cannon on. And before we dive into the conversation, I just want to remind you that Misaligned is part of the Modern Vinyl family of podcasts. There are plenty of other awesome shows to check out. Everything is over at modern-vinyl.com. And there's a little podcast tab right at the top of the screen there. So you can go check out Pilot Study. They recently did an episode on the pilot episode of Riverdale, which is apparently a show that a lot of people are enjoying but i haven't checked it out yet but the episode was still good so check that out and now we are going to dive into our conversation conversation so jesse how are you today i'm great yourself pretty good pretty good hoping we don't get any dogs barking today it seems to be a common no. theme around here <laughs> I, it's a good thing i'm not at home because we just got a puppy and that would definitely be the problem that i have at home nice the important question is what kind of puppy did you get it's it so it is a rescue, so we're not positive, but it's starting to look like an English pointer. We think, okay. so we're do, we're doing a little <laughs> bit of uh, we're doing a little bit of guesswork, but the 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 dog is adorable. I've actually like I've been making the joke that like everybody's like, well, why haven't you put it on Instagram? I'm like, because it might get more likes than my book, and that'd be really sad. <laughs> Got to promote <laughs> that book first. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I follow a lot of dogs on Instagram, so I understand mm. how that could be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I follow like four Bernese Mountain Dogs, so. Nice. It's a, I, I understand that thing. I have some friends in Alaska who have a Bernese Mountain Dog, and, you know, I like all of the dog pictures and videos that they post, and then I follow a mm. ton of corgis. <laughs> oh, yeah, we we, we, had, we were uh, taking care of a corgi. Uh, we had a subletter with one a, a little bit before. It was actually a dorgi, the dachshund corgi. It was very okay. cute. Okay. One, one of the cutest dogs I've ever known in my life. Yeah, corgis are the only small dogs that I like because I feel like mm -hmm. they're big dogs with little legs. <laughs> you, you, the, 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 this uh, opinion is dead on in my opinion. Yeah. All right. Well, dog talk aside, <laughs> we yes. are definitely here to talk about some music related topics today. But first, why don't we go ahead and start off with Noise Creators. You started that with Johnny Minardi not too long ago. What was the idea behind starting that? And when did you really know that this idea was going to come to fruition? So Johnny had hit me up, I guess it would have been December of 2015 and showed it to me. And I was like, this is really good. And this is like something we need, like being a record producer every day. I know that most of my clients don't book me for good reasons. They're not informed about what I do. They're not informed about if we're compatible. Um, I like to think of it as like that thing of like, um, so, you know, that there's like that Aziz Ansari book, uh, Modern Love, like where he talks about in the 1950s that everybody, uh, that the 80% of marriages happened to somebody that lived within five miles of you. And then now it's 500 is the uh, statistic. So you have this thing of that as the internet gets better and better, we're able to find better connections, better fits. And I think one of the things that makes really bad music, even for when people write a decent record, is often a bad producer fit. So we saw ways that we could get the right information out there about a better producer fit and help bands easily get to that. And then I guess we spent, I came on board, I think in June, 2016. Is that right? No, I'm sorry. I'm getting this wrong. 2014 was December, 2014. Then 2015, we built it all year. And then, uh, 
yeah, it's been just going well. Every month it grows more and uh, more people see the benefits and we're about to expand into other types of creators very soon. So we're signing up people like yourself who do other music business services and things like that to be listed and because we really want to just be the place that when you're like, I have to hire somebody in the music business, this is where you go to find a professional. Yeah, and I definitely still need to fill out that form. Nice. I saw it on my phone and I was sort of waiting until I opened it up on my laptop. And as you know, you get distracted with other things. And, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, I have to do this one little thing that will literally take me like two minutes, but I keep forgetting. The, the, the day that there's no longer things I can't do on my phone that I need to do, do on my laptop is a day I will be a lot more of an efficient person. <laughs> it's definitely the plague of my life. Yeah, I probably could get away with doing it on my phone, but I felt like I would just type it on my laptop much faster than I would, you know, pecking away on my phone. Totally. But you mentioned, obviously, now you are going to be expanding this. But is there any sort of business model that you have for noise creators? Is it something where the creators pay to be listed on the website? Or is it just something you guys are trying to do just to basically spread the word right now? So we take a percentage from the producers. Uh, if we recommend them for jobs. So one of the main features of the site is that people can ask us about it because I master for so many people. I've been a band manager and then Johnny's been A&R at Field by Ramen and then now Equal Vision and he manages a ton of producers. We are so experienced with finding good fits for bands that help them make better records. So when we recommend a producer in our service, we take a certain percentage of it, but that is the only fee. The bands actually often get better rates through us because we're able to, like, if a producer's... Like, hey, it's, I'm this much money. We're like, dude, let's be realistic. Like, everybody else is doing this. Like, we have all their rates. We can be like, this is more like what you should be doing for this. You know, and if we see the benefits of this band, that they may be getting signed to this, we can just help them make more informed decisions. If there's one thing I know as a producer who's a lot of my friends are producers too, it's that they don't have the time to research and know uh, what the market's like and as well uh, what bands they should be working with that are going to be doing big things tomorrow. And we're able to see that by ba staying in touch with the whole scene type thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think taking a percentage of fees and everything is sort of becoming more common mm -hmm. in the music industry now. Like you see Bandcamp with their 15% fee and all of the streaming services obviously you can either choose to pay up front or you know i'm not using the best service possible but i've been using root note simply because mm -hmm. my artists are so small that they don't really make enough for me to justify spending 20 30 bucks on their albums each year so mm -hmm. you know i'm using the free model on root note and they take a certain percentage and i believe you have to hit like 50 bucks in streaming royalties before they'll even pay you out so mine's kind of just sitting there still nice. it'll probably nice. be there for a while because as you well know not all artists are going to make a ton of money from streaming services especially if people are buying more and more things through Bandcamp or another service it's totally true that uh and I, i've always thought root note has a really interesting thing especially for people who are like like you know like right now uh I have the thing of, like, uh, some of the bands I was in, like, uh, right around college, everything. Like, people are like, you need to put that up, da 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 Like, you know, like, one of the guys in one of my bands, like, won a Pulitzer Prize. So people are like, I want to hear that band. And it's like, you know, uh, I don't really want to pay the money to keep that up. But I did see DistroKid now has, like, a, I think it's $40, and then you never have to pay a fee again uh, fee right. for their thing. And I'm like, 
All right, that seems reasonable. If I'm paying $20 for the DistroKid subscription and then $40 to keep it up forever, I think this makes sense to do, actually. Yeah, definitely. I know when I was looking at DistroKid because I was like, I know Jesse recommended something on Twitter. So I was mm-hmm. like kind of trying to go back and find it. I was like, okay, it's DistroKid. But as a label, mm-hmm. it's a different model. I believe for me, it would have been like 80 bucks a year if I wanted to transfer all of my label releases to I, that. I think you're and, right. You know, I most of them are EPs. Mm. So, you know, four or five songs to me isn't necessarily worth putting forward that much money if I know it's definitely not going to be made back anytime soon. And as I'm sure you know, getting a job in the music industry is not the easiest thing to do. So oh. you have noise creators, but on top of that, you know, you have your studio and you're writing books and it's like you have to sort of do a ton of things. So when you first started in the industry, did you find then it was easier than it maybe is now? Because, you know, I went to school with Zach Zarillo, which you probably yes, already know. So we have music industry degrees specifically. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like I don't know if that's necessarily a I, I by no means would call it a bad thing because, you know, we had Darren Walters as a yes. professor who ran Tree, So it's like we got a good experience from that. And Drexel has a program that actually allows you to take classes where you are literally sitting in class calling promoters and bookers to get tours set up and everything. So that experience is great. But I feel like sometimes, you know, I did an internship at Fearless for my first co-op and then I did one at a music tech company, which is more of a side project for the guy who runs it. Mm. So it's like those two things didn't necessarily get my foot in the door, especially now that Fearless was bought out by, I believe, Concord Bicycle or something like that. That is correct. Yes. So it's like Fearless has changed so much since I was there. It's like, all right, do I even know anyone who is there still? And, you know, I had a job at a company called Music Reports, which I was doing data entry there. Uh And for me, I want something that's a lot more hands-on. Like I've been trying to do some freelance PR and obviously this podcast is a really fun thing to do, but it's not, those aren't really things that have paid me a Mm. whole lot. You know, I have like dirt cheap PR rates right now because I'm just like, all right, guys, I will take whatever I can get. Mm -hmm. And as you know, with doing so many things, that whole one page resume thing is very hard to then do because you're Uh like, but I do so many more than things that can fit on one page. So I was like, all right, well, how am I going to get a job if I can't even put everything I do on a single page? Yeah. I think, you know what it is, is that, um, so I just went through, you know, like I kind of joke that, um, my second job is being everybody's, um, uh, resume reference and, uh, college, (laughs) college letter recommender. Like, you know, it's like kids coming through the thing. They're like, can you recommend me for my college? We worked together technically. I'm like, well, you did pay me to record your band for three weeks, sure. And I saw that your work ethic. (laughs) I'm happy to do that. And, you know, I can kind of do the English language a little bit. Um, But so what I have really started to believe, though, is that if you do have real experience, it's not against the law to go over that one page thing, especially like in the music business. It's like. We're already all so bad with the rules as it is. And, like, I think by (laughs) nature, it's, like, that thing. But, like, it is tough, too, because, like, so there's this book. um, Are you familiar with it called Who? Um, It's about hiring people. No, I'm not. Um, So I read this, like, I think, like, two years ago. Um, And one of the things I think is really interesting is it's, like, 
it's very much on that like so i'll back up when i used to have interns at the studio i would never do interviews with them what i would do is i'd be like come by for a day and hang out so the year so it's been 11 years since i hired someone and at that time i was hiring a second assistant because we were so busy and i i had 100 people come in for a day then and Mike, who now co-owns my studio with me, was the only person who stuck. Um, and the way I saw that was like, you throw people in the fire, you see what they do. And I think we're going to see a lot of people like kind of changing their hiring habits. Like I always say like the music business is so bad at like catching up. But now that like tech in music business and everybody realizes they have to use like startup practices, they're going to start saying because right. everybody in Silicon Valley reads that book who like that's why I read it. And um it's that thing of like, I think it's even more like uh, it's sometimes good to go outside the box on the resume and just be like, here's the things I can do. You should let me come in the doors and I will kick ass for you for a couple of days and you'll see that I'm worth it. Because I do see my friends hire outside the box now uh, for things like it's even the funny thing is, too, is like I see a lot of people like um, I was talking with a friend the other day. I just helped a friend, actually. Like It was like his business was getting too much. And I'm like. What you need to do is you need to hire somebody who will just do the dumbest emails. They're going to check your inbox for an hour every morning. I used to have somebody until January. I had somebody who did two to five hours a week for me. I paid them money to just do the things that I'm too busy to do because it was worth my money to do that. I think that that's going to be a lot more of a thing and that people need to just kind of get out because it does suck because like you guys went to a great school, but like the majority of these music business schools, and I, I say this as a graduate of one, are fucking terrible. And uh, <laughs> it's just and like you guys actually went to like one of the few respectful ones that it's like, oh, well, you know, you went to a good school. But it's like everybody gets a bad reputation about uh, how bad a music school degree is. Like, actually, you know, this is funny. So my first, second job out of college was with Alan Douchess at West West Side Music. And he didn't want to hire me because he had so many bad experiences with music school people because they felt so entitled to like money and things like that. Right. And not to say he wasn't paying anything, but the more was saying like you're they felt entitled when they were still doing worthless work. Like it does take time for you to be worth anything in the recording studio and actually be solving somebody's problem. They're not just propping you up and paying you to learn and then take away their job one day. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was just thinking about this recently because of the whole applying for job after job after job and it's like it's been over a year and I haven't even gotten an interview anywhere Mm. and I was like okay I'm sorry but a piece of paper or a pdf that I email you of my resume is not going to tell you the kind of effort I put in at all Mm -hmm. and I was like okay so now I have to figure out how I'm going to sort of revamp my resume because what I have right now is I have a resume of basically the actual jobs and internships I've had. And then I have a separate resume for just my writing that I've done and podcasts that I've done. Mm. So I was like, okay, each of those is a single page. So do I just combine them and get over it that it's two pages long? Or do I sort of cut out things here and there that might not matter anymore? Like, I believe I still have that internship from the recording studio on there. But Mm. because I'm aiming to go more in the business direction maybe i don't need to put that but i still have that boss as a reference Mm. because i was like okay so now what do i do here and it's like you sort of have to play this game with your resume and just find something that finally fits and sort of gives a whole picture 
of everything you can do. I think you're dead on with that. I think it's I think it's that, and then it's also trying to get in the door. Like I guess the uh, the other helpful thing I guess I have is um. So after I was working at West West Side Music, one of the things I liked about working there is all the best producers of the day were coming in all the time. And Steve Evitz, who um, he's right now doing the new Knuckle Puck, uh, did the Wonder Years on through Saves the Day through being cool. <clears throat> he was my favorite producer, and he'd come in, and I eventually just was like, let me do whatever shit work you have. And I think the first job I did for him was like something dumb, like doing drum triggers, which is the most menial work of all time. And I was like, and the first one, I'm like, let me do it for free to show you my worth. And getting in that door, it's like, yeah, within a few years, I was flying around the world with him and going to England to do a Cure record and things like that under Ross Robinson because he recommended me to Ross Robinson. I think so much of it is sadly that, yeah, it is so hard to get the interview to because it's really also... So many times the people who get the music business jobs are just the people who are right in front of somebody's face. They're like, okay, yeah, you, and then they're in a bad – then even if they're not a good fit, it just um, – what do you call it? it they keep keeping the person. They're just mad at the person and da-da-da-da, and then somebody worthy of the job doesn't even get the job. It's right. so silly. So it's like so much of it is, I think, just like figuring out how you hack getting in the door. Yeah, and I've even come across some jobs where I knew someone at the company because from running Hi-Fi Noise, I get press mm-hmm. releases from a lot of PR companies, and I went to apply to one of the places that had sent me emails here and there, but they were using a recruiter. So it didn't huh. matter that I knew like the director of publicity or whatever, and I was just like, so doesn't matter who you know necessarily. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. It's just like one of those weird things where it depends on how they go about hiring as well. And, you know, I'm in quite a few different music industry type groups on Facebook. And it's like, you know, sometimes the groups are just filled with like, does anyone know someone here so I can check in on my resume? And I've never really felt like that is a way I want to go about getting Mm -hmm. a job, just asking a group of random people if they have a contact at a company to sort of be like, hey, so-and-so gave me your email. How's my resume doing? (laughs) You know? Yeah, no, I I agree. That is not a, uh, it's not going to make the best impression for sure. Yeah. So what I've just been doing recently is whether or not PR places are hiring, like, you know, Brixton, Catalyst, a bunch of the ones I'm sure you're also familiar with because they've Mm -hmm. probably worked with a lot of the bands you've recorded with. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I just sort of email them. I'm like, hey, I'm still on the job hunt. Here's my resume. If you have something open, you know, let me know that sort of thing. And I'm just sort of just kind of getting the word out there, even if places aren't hiring right now. I think that's the way to go is, is you keep uh, pushing out at that or you just try to find somebody who will let you get in the door and show the, show them what you can do. Yeah, and I feel like it's definitely way easier to get internships in the music industry because when I went to intern at Fearless, it was actually the summer before I was required to do an internship at Drexel. So I was there two summers in a row. But, mm. you know, they didn't even meet with me. They called me while I was still in Philadelphia and they were like, yeah, okay, you can intern with us. That's cool. So then the next summer, I just, you know, emailed or called back and was like, hey, can I come back this summer and do something different? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. And Hmm. my internship at Cumulus FM, which is the music tech company I mentioned, I Hmm. simply got that because I had started using the product and the owner emailed me. And then I just ended up going back and forth with him. And I, you know, told him I had an internship 
for school that I had to do. And he was just like, yeah, come intern with me. We can just, you know, have you do social media stuff, do customer service type stuff. You know, like I was trying to get people to use or try out the product. And from there, it's just like I sort of kept doing things for him, but it was never something that I knew would turn into a full-time job because it wasn't even his full-time job. It was just, you know, this hobby project of his and he happened to have some money to pay me, which was great. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think think that's the, the other thing is, is uh, so many places are on the thing of like, just get every intern you can because it's free labor and da, 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 da. You don't need to do anything. And it's just like, yeah, those things have to turn into jobs for people or it's kind of unfair and predatory. <laughs> right. Right. And I know, you know, Warner especially got in trouble with this because they were having just a ton of interns and most of them were going to get coffee or making copies and stuff like that. And I know they got the crap suit out of them. Mm -hmm. So I feel like though with, you know, I haven't really, I've applied to the big companies like Warner and Universal, but I feel like I don't know if those are the places I'd necessarily want to work or, you know, even have a chance of working at because I feel like more often than not they're probably hiring internally or you have to intern with them first and I'm kind of at the point where it's like I've already done internships yep you can see on my resume that I have done internships so you know I need to be able to do things like eventually move out of my parents house and pay rent again so Mm -hmm. it's like I can't keep doing internships guys yeah, it really becomes a a tough spot. And then, like the other thing, I feel horrible about everybody for is like how much college costs and trying to do entry level positions. It really isn't um, very nice these days of uh, what paying back those loans looks like uh, while doing yeah. an entry level job. It's it's horrendous. I have so many friends who, you know, like the tuition at the college I went to. I mean, I guess it's kind of sad when I'm like, oh well, I did graduate college twenty years ago this year, but like. That tuition's three and a half times more, I believe, when I last looked. Yeah. So that's insane. Yeah. And again, it definitely depends on what schools you go to as well. Like if I had stayed in California for school and gone to a school like one of the Cal States or the Mm -hmm. UCs, it would have been much cheaper. (laughs) But, you know, those schools didn't necessarily have any of the programs I was looking for. So it was just like, all right, guess I have to go to this fancy school over in Philly just to get the, you know, the program that I wanted because I did visit other schools. I think Hofstra had some semblance of a music business program, but it was just like middle of nowhere, Long Island. And then, you know, I visited Drexel and it was like, okay, they had recording studios on campus. They had, you know, professors who had done things recently in the music business. And even while I was there, they had new professors come in who sort of had done a lot in the music industry in general. So, you know, Drexel puts in a good effort to Mm -hmm. make that program as good as they can. I I think they're one of the few uh, colleges that actually feels held accountable to doing a good job, which is um, a rare thing, especially with music business programs. Yeah, and I think the other good option was probably USC, but that happened to be the one school I didn't get into. So that was, you know, that was already out early in the picture. Mm. But because of it being in LA too, it's like, all right, you know, they're going to have a lot of people that they can pluck out of the music industry just within that area. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that actually does make sense. Um, 
You know, it's, it's funny. I've never, I've never heard of uh, USC's program. I mean, I guess the only other really good one I know is I know Syracuse is good, and I know what's the other one that uh, I feel like uh, people talk about. God, now it's not coming to me, of course, because if I haven't uh, thought about something uh, in five minutes, it doesn't stay in my brain. <laughs> I have this joke now that it's like I, I'm the opposite of a pot smoker, that um, I can remember everything I've thought about for the last two weeks in the gravest detail and nothing I haven't thought about in two weeks at all. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the other places I applied to was Columbia College, Chicago. Mm. And then... So that might be it. I don't know too much about the program now, but then there was another school I had applied to, University of the Pacific, that, you know, they didn't have necessarily a direct music business program. They had something like arts management with a focus in music industry or something ridiculous like that. And now that, you know, I've finished college and everything, they have a full-blown music industry program there. (laughs) Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to change fast these days. And I, I, it's yeah. shocking to me that anybody's um, still starting new music business programs because it seems like also it's like one of those things like we're going to end up folding all of this into entertainment business any right. month now because everybody's going to go. Uh, I mean, I really do. Apparently. So my friend told me this, that uh, they did that. There's just a. uh I want to say it was Pew. They hired Pew to do a study, and that p- people really do feel like there's no money to be made in the music business. So that should mean that most of these colleges stop making programs and start folding it all into music, film, and the arts all being one type of business. Yeah, and I think a lot of times too, most people who are interested in music that I've noticed anyway tend to also really enjoy other aspects of the entertainment industry. Like, mm-hmm. you know, James Shotwell yes. works at Holix and then runs the film section over at Substream. So he sort of is connected to both sides just from that. And as someone who sort of loves not only music, but podcasts now and mm-hmm. TV and comic books, it's like, if I could have learned about all of those things, you know, that would have been great too. But, you know, College is expensive, and mm. I finished early, so theoretically, wow. if I had stayed the extra, I believe I finished six months early, which is two terms at Drexel, if I had stayed until you know I, I wanted to graduate with everyone else or something like that, I probably could have fit in another 10 classes of just whatever I wanted, but I was not going to do that to mm. my parents, so Understood. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> I, I, I think there is that thing that, like, you know... At the end of the day, we're – what is the statistic? Like it's like 60% of people don't do the job that they got – that they did their major in. Like I always think yeah. of my father is like – my father's like a American history major and he was an advertising executive all his life. It's like right. makes, n- makes no sense what it is. But I, I, mean, I think that it is an interesting thing too though is that like – I mean I, I, I can be honest here. It's like you know I've been producing records for almost 20 years and there's part of me that's like – you know, it'd be really like I really love movies too. Like you're just talking about J- James Shotwell. Like I love reading his stuff because I love movies and TV. And I'm like, maybe I should do a documentary or something next. I've been watching documentaries for 20 years, and it is interesting to think that like, well, we don't need to be married to the thing we went to college with or have done because really people just are looking for effective skills and categories and areas and people who are good at doing jobs. 
Yeah, exactly. And right now I just keep telling myself I did things backwards because I have a lot of friends who will like take a year break after college or something and then Mm. either apply to grad school or get a job. And so I'm like, well, I had a job for a year and now I haven't had a job for a year. So maybe (laughs) I'm just doing things backwards, even though it's been a little longer than a year now. So, you know, I'm still applying to stuff as often as I see it because... I'm sure, as you know, it's like the entry level positions are few and far between for the Mm -hmm. music industry. You know, I'll often see job posting at job postings and they're like director, manager, you know, five plus years or Mm -hmm. I'll see entry level jobs. And it's like two to three years experience. I'm like, you guys don't understand the definition (laughs) of entry level. Yes. (laughs) I, I, I know that meme on the Internet. (laughs) yeah all right well enough of the job talk we Mm -hmm. will you know obviously that's something that can be talked about at great length especially you know i'm sure the listeners are very very tired of me talking about not having a job i'm so sorry (laughs) it's just i talk to different people about it so you know for me it's a different conversation i I think it's also something when when zach and i were doing off the record that was the vast majority of the questions was about this because it's really tough yeah but you have a book coming out soon. Yes. It's called Processing Creativity. I know the title is much longer than that, yes. but we're going to call it that for the sake of me not taking five minutes to say the title. I will say it this once, though. Mm. So the full title is Processing Creativity, The Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With. And you know this book will be out on March 28th, so this will probably be going up a week and a half or so before the book comes out. So we won't get into too many details about the mm. book, but I finished it late last night. I was like, oh, right, wow. I'm recording with Jesse, got to finish this. You That's know, awesome. In the copy you sent me, it's about 240 pages, I want to say. I know yes. there were some blank pages in there probably for an index or you know appendix, what have you, but as someone who knew after high school that I did not want to go into the tech side of the music business. Mm. I still found this to be a really entertaining read because there's so much in this book that you can easily apply to other things, you know, for the bands writing a song could be similar to me writing, you know, album reviews, TV reviews, comic book reviews, all of those things that I've been doing recently. And, you know, creativity is something that hits people in different ways so even if you are someone who strictly makes music for a living or produces music for a living you don't necessarily do that the same way every single day Mm -hmm. i thought that focus was sort of the key to understanding what this book is about you know it's really about telling people that if you try to emulate the way someone else does something, it's not going to work for you necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you, everyone just needs to sort of find their own way to tailor all of these different processes to themselves. That is exactly right. And um, since not many people have read this book, I'm glad that I went through. It's like every time I buy somebody's like, okay, I finished it. I'm like, okay, let's see what they think the think this is about. And that, <laughs> that, that, that was a very good read. Because to me, a lot of the book, like I say it at some points in the thing, is like I did not read a lot of, let's say, musical text. Now, granted, there's like literally no book that is music and creativity specific that's ever been released. Um, there's mm-hmm. one that's like close. But like I got most of it from reading, you know, the curriculum for NYU film and things like that and going to their bookstore and like – Doing things that are more uh, focused in other creative outlets, and I like, I was really adamant that this should be able to be easily applied to anything in somebody's life because, like, I really just like 
it, it's shocking to me that we're all so interested in crea- discussing creativity. Everybody discusses it all day, but so few people actually read the real facts about it and academic studies and scientific studies and then apply it. And I wanted to apply it in a way that's not as boring as all the things I read these past couple of years because, God, was that torture. <laughs> yeah, and – I am such a nerd about reading books that I got really excited that you put a further reading section in the back of the book because, you know, a lot of times I'll be reading nonfiction and it's like, you know, these huge books on music like 33 Revolutions Per Minute. It's like Mm -hmm. they've referenced so many books that I'm not going to go through all of those. You know, maybe I own some of them and, you know, I'll end up reading those. But it's the same with sports books, too, because Mm -hmm. they'll pull from online articles and, you know, someone like Kobe, who has probably a ton of books or Michael Jordan, who has a ton of books written about them. There's going to be more than I'm probably wanting to read at the moment on the same person but with a book like this you know you have a book from Stephen King on writing which mm-hmm. I had read a while ago and found thoroughly entertaining That's because a great book. you know yeah he's written at least like what 60 books now and he just keeps cranking them out and you know it's like every single one probably has been a bestseller And, you know, I've only read maybe a handful of his books, Mm -hmm. but you see how much influence he has because I don't know if you heard about Castle Rock, the new Hulu project, I believe, that's being announced. I did see it. I watched the uh, first one he did with Hulu with a James Franco one, which was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The I what was that? Eleven twenty two sixty three. That is it. I'm glad you remembered the numbers because I wasn't going to attempt it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought the book after that. You know, they do reprintings of his books so often that you can walk into like a Sam's Club or Costco and get all his books for like six bucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I guess that is the thing. I mean, somebody said that like he's up to the guy who started Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, that he's the second most prolific book writer in the history of uh, writing or something like that his or no this is what it is he's the most consistent prolific seller in the history of book writing yeah i don't doubt that because you know i even noticed every time i would go with my mom to run errands get groceries and whatever i would always look at the book section at sam's club and i was like okay they're reprinting this one and this one and they're sort of going in somewhat of an order and just reprinting all of his mm-hmm. books and Luckily for me, my mom had started collecting those quite a while ago. So we have a good chunk of them that are in order. You know, Mm. she bought Carrie and then bought all the way through like some of the Dark Towers. And I've sort of been filling in the more recent books as I go because I am a nerd like that and I want to have the whole complete thing. (laughs) That's Listen, I'm really big on uh, serializing your favorite creator's works. Like I talk about it in the book of like I – actually do a thing very uh, probably once a month at least that I will take a day off and I'll just watch all my favorite directors movies in a row and usually I'll buy, like if it's a more prolific director like I just did it with Jim Jarmusch and I like that takes like over two weeks to do like watching like one yeah. or two a week uh, I'm sorry one or two a day for like about a week to get through I think like he has 16 films I had to watch or something crazy like that and like you learn so much doing Watching somebody progress and seeing what they pick up along the way, it's so much easier to see that stuff when you serialize somebody's work. 
Yeah, and I am someone who has probably at least I've, I I want to say I probably have somewhere around 200 books sitting in my room right now. Wow. I had to bring in a whole other bookshelf because I was just having piles of books stacking up and you know my shelves looked like they were about to break cuz I had so many books <laughs> on them. But, nice. you know, I I don't know if it was you who said at one point you weren't a huge fan of Chuck Klosterman, but he's someone whose books I have, you know, I believe he has 10 now mm. or his 10th one is coming out soon so i have all but one because i was just sent an advanced copy of his new book so it's like i'm missing the last one because it hasn't come out in paperback just yet but you know i have all of his books and then chuck palaniuk i want to say the uh, guy I, I, think wrote... I think i think it's palaniuk is how you say it Pal- okay yeah i always say it how it looks mm-hmm. and then i'm like that's probably not right but you know he's the guy who wrote fight club for anyone yes. who doesn't know and i've started you know sort of collecting his books and I have them mm. in chronological order on my shelf. And there are just some authors that I'm like, okay, if I like four or five of their books and I already know this, I might as well just get the rest because mm. there's a very high chance that I'm going to enjoy them. And I sort of do similar things with music too, obviously, you know, I'll have all of the yellow card albums, all of the mm. clash albums, except for maybe what was that one? Cut, Cut the crap. The crap or you know, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I have it on vinyl te- technically, but that doesn't mean it's ever been played. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know you and I did a piece on the Clash. Yes, oh, we did. God, it was forever ago. I think yes. it was supposed to be for Property of Zach, but then, maybe I ended up posting it. I have yes, no clue anymore. Zach folded before we were done. Yes, th- I. That sounds accurate, mm-hmm. but it's like you know, I just love the clash so much that Mm -hmm. i will read anything written about them i'll listen to all but that one album and Mm. you know i will talk to people all day about the clash if they let me yeah yeah (laughs) which you know maybe you and i can do a whole other episode for that for welcome to geekdom or something and just go all out on the clash i've i've definitely uh taken in i have uh, you know what's crazy is like i'm really not into live bootlegs but that's the one band i'm like an exception of is i have tons of uh live dvds from them yeah definitely but going back to the book real quick and some of the further reading you have you know i was going through the list i was like i have that book i have that book i have that book i want that book (laughs) and you know because i have so many books as i just mentioned i have not come close to reading all of them and that's not even you know, that 200-ish isn't even counting all of the Stephen King books my mom has mm. sitting out in the hallway because she has bookshelves of her own that just happen to also be authors that I would probably enjoy. So I sort of just, you know, borrow those whenever I feel like reading them. Oh. And, you know, I think the list you came up with, it was just like, I understand why you chose those books mm-hmm. to sort of help bolster what you put in processing creativity. And, Like I said, even though I'm not someone who's going to necessarily be in a studio making music or producing music, there's still something in this book that I feel like every creative person can relate to because, you know, I would get in a zone and just be reading this and I was like, now I want to go write a book, you know? (laughs) That's what I hope. That's awesome. That's what I want is I want people to feel empowered to be creative uh, after they read this and like do something new and make something new and get more inspired. Yeah, and I have had an idea that I've been sitting on. It's just one of those things where it requires me to watch a TV show I've never watched, which is The OC for anyone who is Mm. curious. And I'm sure, as most people who have already watched that show know, there's quite a few episodes. So it would take me a while to get through that. But 
you know, I haven't really publicly talked about what exactly the idea is. So maybe I'll send you an email or something and uh, we could I, discuss that because I would love to hear it. Yeah. I don't want to publicly talk about something if I don't know if it's actually going to happen. Uh, because for me, you know, I've been focusing on the podcast, doing writing for a bunch of websites and, you know, obviously the job hunt mm -hmm. as well. So it's like, okay, I probably should do this while I don't have a job or at least get it going while I don't have a job just because I know as soon as I get a job, something is going to have to sort of take a backseat to that because all of the stuff I'm doing now, I probably spend at least a good, I want to say four to six hours on during, you know, normal work hours. And then mm -hmm. I sort of just don't do it on the weekend. So I'm sort of still trying to keep myself in that Monday to Friday job routine, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I know as soon as I get a job, I'm going to be like, uh, so I'm just going to spend all weekend doing all of these things. You know, I'll probably have to push podcast recording to weekends only or pick a couple nights during the week where I'd be willing to record. And so now I'm trying to like get as many podcasts recorded as I can while I still have the flexibility to record when it's good for other people. Yes. So, you know, I need to sort of get back to cranking out these episodes and piling them up in, you know, audio hijack and everything and just having a ton of files that I need to edit. Yeah. I mean, you know, and th that is the, the funny thing too, is, is like, there's so much times it's like, when you're trying to fit in creativity with a day job, and like realistically, it's like I often joke I have the equivalent of three day jobs. So trying to fit in writing this book, it's like it became the thing of like I couldn't, you know, for like when we started Noise Creators, it's like I was doing two podcasts a week and I had to go down to like one every 10 days kind of ish thing because like even right. just that was just like it was getting to be too, everything got to be too much trying to get this book done. And, um, it's tough, but I, I mean, I will say this, that it's always the thing of, too, with, like, anything big like a book. It's, like, start taking notes. Like, when I say, you know, throughout the book that, like, I wrote this book for four years, what it really was is, like, I took – so when I started writing the book – so as you said, the book's 240 pages, uh, 90,000 words. I realistically uh, had 450 pages of notes when I started the book – actually writing the book and, like, being, like right. – Shifting that thing, and I think it's so important that you just write notes. And now, what I should also say is with those 450 pages, I'm going to say a good 100 of those was me writing the same idea four times just every three months. I would write the <laughs> same one be like, this is brilliant. I never thought of this before. And then you know, you read it. You're like, well, what's good about that is is you have that idea a different time in a different way, and then you take the best ones of it, and you make it into something better, and you keep having evolved thoughts on it. But it's so important to – Start immediately, start getting the note file and collecting because I really do um, – I read somebody say this thing of like that like – oh, it's David Foster Wallace uh, that the difference between a mediocre book and a great book is the amount of time spent thinking about the characters. And I really do believe that. Uh, that's true because everybody I see who makes really monumental work takes so much time and devotion to – putting more effort into their work than other people. Yeah, definitely. And especially going back to Stephen King, you know, mm -hmm. you will see some of his references come up in multiple books of his. And it's like, if you aren't really following along chronologically with his books, you might read a book and be like, I don't understand what this means or something like that. And it's like, you have to have read this book or, you know, this other book to sort of get the full picture of things sometimes. And I think that's what 
a lot of people really like about Stephen King, too. Mm -hmm. It's like he has this whole world that he's created, but it's not necessarily something like what J.K. Rowling did with Harry Potter. It's a totally different thing. I love that, too. And it's like, I think there's something so cool about when uh, Chuck Palahniuk does it, too. Is like, you know, there's certain character references that happen throughout their work and things like that, that, like... As long as you could appreciate it by diving in, like, like uh, I do really believe that a lot of the best work is done, too, that when you can, uh, like, TV shows that you don't have to have seen every episode to be able to appreciate a thing and be able to just go, okay, this is good without me knowing the backstory still. Right. Uh, I think Stephen King does a really great balance of that. Yeah, and it just sort of makes it a little more rewarding for those who have gone through and spent so much time with all of his books it's not that you won't necessarily understand the whole story if you don't get this one little part right away but it's just you know those extra little easter eggs as one would call them and Mm -hmm. you know the superhero tv shows and everything they're like oh they left this easter egg in the flash and that sort of thing and i'm like Mm -hmm. half the time i don't even pay attention to those because i'm so like engrossed in what's actually happening and that's been especially true for a show like legion Mm. Which I think, you know, it sort of fits really well with this book because it's so different, but it's so creative at the same time. And it's like, you know, you're just watching it and you're like, what are they doing? How are they doing this? What's going Mm. to happen? And it's just like it sort of leaves you guessing the entire time. It's on my list to watch, uh, uh, watch soon. I'm trying to move into this thing where I'm I'm on a new rule of um, no shows until their seasons are done um, is my new rule. Um, because I'm, I, I'm so bad with, um, I'll get consumed between the episodes and I don't have time to be consumed by it anymore. So I want right. to just binge it all and get it over with. So I don't go insane. Cause like Westworld made me thoroughly insane. Yeah. See, I still haven't watched that. I'm like really bad at watching shows when they mm. drop or, you know, when everyone else is watching them. Legion mm. is simply an exception because I decided I was going to review it, but you know, I just recently started catching up on shows from last year, like Orange is the New Black season Mm -hmm. four. And, you know, I'm even just now starting The Night Manager, which was an AMC show that ran like six episodes. And then, you know, as I watched that first episode, because it's something I'm watching with my mom since she was such a big house fan that we've sort of been going Mm -hmm. back and watching the Hugh Laurie show. So we watched Chance recently and now we're watching this. And then I was like, oh, they're working on a second season. I thought it was just, you know, supposed to be those six episodes. But luckily, too. it is only six episodes. Mm. But I did find out this week they are working slowly but surely on a second season. Nice. I didn't watch that, but I put, that's on my list as well. Yeah, and I think it's cool when you have these shows that are, you know, six to eight episodes because you don't necessarily have to binge them, but they're still easy to get through quickly enough to where you don't have to be like, oh, wait. Am I going to have time to watch, you know, this 20 episode season of something because it's not nearly as long as network TV seasons are? I, I, I agreed. It, it, I, I can really get into I, I think that's one of like one of the nice things now is like I think people are getting less uh, conformist with like the season must be 12 or 24 episodes. And there's no exception to that, that like people are actually planning content around what makes most sense for the story, like. I loved seeing that the OA had 37-minute episodes and then 75-minute episodes to make the plot actually work, because that's what matters. Not fitting it into these like nice little formats for people. 
Yeah, and I think that's why a show like Stranger Things did so well, too, mm-hmm. because, you know, they didn't overdo it. They were like, here's the story we're going to tell. Here's the time we're going to tell it in. Yes. And I think, like you said, you know, it's not necessarily even, you know, giving a limit to the creativity. It's just knowing when the creativity has its limits. Yes. So I think that's something that I think, you know, a lot of people probably will agree with this that marvel could probably work on a little more with their netflix shows because every single season i believe has been 13 episodes Mm. which isn't a lot but i know a lot of people have felt like you know they could have maybe been 10 or even eight episodes for certain seasons and you know when i watch those shows i do tend to sit there and watch them in a whole weekend so i don't really keep track as well of how long I've been sitting there because mm-hmm. I'm just like all right I'm gonna start it here gonna end it this day and then you know it'll be done in that weekend and those are the very few exceptions I've had to you know sort of binge watching stuff in a relatively timely manner compared to when it comes out and it's just like you know I understand if people don't binge watch it how it could feel more dragged out to them and I think you know, Netflix, it's sort of hard to gauge with the audience because you're like, okay, are they someone like me who's going to binge watch it in a whole weekend? Or are they going to take their time with it and sort of spread it out so that they're not getting it all sent to their head all at once with all this information? Yes. I think it, you know, it is an interesting thing with um, TV and movies because there's this value thing. So like you mentioned, my book's 240 pages about and uh there's an interesting thing, though, is that it's actually the length of, on average, one and a half books. So the average 240-page book is 60,000 words, but this book is 93,000. Um, okay. And that's basically all done by not jacking up the font, not jacking up the line spacing, not jacking up the all the tricks people do. Because apparently what the r- real thing is, is that uh, 240 pages is the sweet spot where people look at it and they go... I will pay $27 for this book, and but this also won't take too much of my time, but it won't take too little that I don't feel ripped off. So I learned this by uh, reading a couple people who wrote about book marketing, that this is like apparently research that's been done. So basically like what's funny is with a book is, you know, you can do all these little things like, you know, like I basically use more space of the page than most people to get away with doing that. And, right. uh, but you know, with a movie, if, or a TV show, you fuck with the pacing. People are like, this is too slow. Like, I go insane when a show is too slow. Or, like, even, like, trying to watch pre-Sopranos shows, like, where, like, TV moved so slow. It's like, it makes me insane to watch any TV show that's doesn't that's not, like, that post-Sopranos fast-moving thing. Right. And then you also have some shows, like, I felt this way specifically with Dexter, where I felt mm. it went maybe a couple seasons too long. About and four, watch- yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, okay, maybe it should have ended at, like, season four or five. But then you have a show like Breaking Bad, and you're like, this was perfect perfect for you know what they wanted to accomplish and you didn't feel like you got cheated out of anything whereas dexter i was like seriously that's how they ended it and i was just like so mad at a tv show and i was like why do you guys do this to me the only thing i was more more mad at was myself for watching that that long it really was like that 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 and weeds were the two biggest wastes of my life watching (laughs) both of them watching past season four like the john lithgow thing dexter should have done been done 
season four of Weeds, it all went to hell, too. Yeah, that season with John Lithgow, I was like, yes, this is like a character they could end it on. Mm-hmm. And then it just went like, I believe, three more seasons after that or something I, like I, that. I, and- it might have even been four. I don't even want to know how much, how many <laughs> hours of my life I wasted watching that trash. Yeah, and it's funny because I had my mom watch it well after the show had ended because it's all on Netflix right now. So I would pop mm-hmm. in every now and then while she was watching it. I'm like, wait, what season is this? What? what what point are we at here and i was like oh we're at this point and then she would like get mad because i wouldn't tell her and i'm like no 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 you just have to wait oh man that's funny but back to your book yes very quickly here you also have a kindle version and i noticed in the copy you sent me there were you know sentences or phrases underlined which i'm guessing is the fact that you put links in the kindle version of the book so that people could go click on those and get more information so here's a fun fact that um since uh you got a promo copy what there is in the real copies of it it says in the beginning that in the physical books everywhere i kept them underlined and then i bolded the key phrases but on those underlines you can go to my books website and then see a lot of the links i did because like I said in the further reading section, it's like I think it's really important that um, – like I think there's like uh, a lot of stuff about ego in the book. And uh, there's like a really good book right. called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday that I wish everybody I work with would read because male ego and since most of what I deal with is young males uh, is the worst thing in the fucking world. It's the single <laughs> mo- most poisonous part of our, our America. And – I want people to click and go deeper. And then there's also just like lots of fun, fun things to see. Like I, you know, like I talk about, I like at one point about how I, I'm going to mess up the years here, but it's like uh, since 1970 something, there's been just about no major inventions that have been invented by a single inventor. But before 1950, every invention was invented by a single inventor usually. And that, we're just evolving. And when you go down that pike and read that story and like, I want people to be able to go through and go deeper. So on, there's a whole bunch of extras from the book um, on the website. I did that. I did a Spotify playlist. I'm actually should say this. I'll be done with it by the time it airs. So I should say this. Uh, everybody <laughs> who's mentioned in the book is in a chronological Spotify playlist. So if you're like, who the hell is that musical reference that he's talking about? You can hit play on it and it's all on the playlist. Uh, I put the further reading up there for the audiobook. I um I even did a bunch of bonus stuff about how I develop songs. Uh but I'm not done writing that and probably won't be till the book comes out. So um maybe I shouldn't be so loud about that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll definitely link to that extras section on awesome. your website and everything because you know, I was like this is underlined and I want to click on it, but I can't <laughs> because it's a real book and you know, I'm someone who owns a kindle as well so mm-hmm. not only do i have a ton of books on my shelves it's like i probably have around a hundred books in my kindle wow. itself and you know i just sort of i try to sort of remove the book from the device when i'm done reading it just so i sort of can let myself know like hey you have been reading some things here but i think you know for the ten dollar price point on kindle this is practically a steal and i know you did this with your get more fans book as well Mm -hmm. which is way longer than this book is and three three times longer (laughs) right and 
you know, I don't have a physical copy of that. But when I was living with Zach, I just borrowed his because nice. I was like, hey, you don't really read books. So can I borrow this for a while? <laughs> that's, that's funny. I, I like that call out of him. I mean, I don't think I said that to him, but it's like something I knew was a fact because, you know, I'm sure anyone who knows Zach is like aware that yes. he doesn't have a book collection or anything yeah. like that. Um, well, you know, it's funny to get to get into the business of it with Unlike with Get More Fans, where it's just so big and it needs to be more money, uh, I make the same amount of money on a physical book that I make on a Kindle book, having it at ten dollars. Um, it's right. the exact same royalty. Whereas uh, Get More Fans, it's a a little bit different because of uh, the just you know having to print seven hundred fifty pages compared to two hundred forty is a lot difference, big difference in money of how much it costs. But uh, I, you know, I do. I know a lot of people get this way with albums that people hate that Apple made albums $9.99. But I do think there is this thing that uh, for as long as we don't have a Spotify for books, which I really hope that that doesn't happen because uh, I don't <laughs> think it's the same thing as albums in the way that they're developed. Um, I like the idea that there's a central price point that goes for books under a certain amount of words. I do think people like, you know, if you're talking about Infinite Jest, I think that that'd be fair to pay thirty dollars for that on the Kindle because it's going to take you a decade to read it. Like when, when I, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm fifty pages into it. Are you? Are, I got fifty pages in. <laughs> I gave up around page four hundred the first. Att- I had a two week vacation in Hawaii and I started reading it. Like God, I think that was almost ten years ago, and uh, I didn't make it through by the end of the vacation. I knew there was no chance of me getting through it in. Because I know that you have to read that book in like under thirty days, or you're never going to remember all the things. So. Especially with my yeah. memory. Yeah. And because I only got 50 pages in, I was like, it's not the end of the world if I just start over. Because yes. my thinking was, this was probably a handful of months ago. So just last year, I attempted to read it. But I was like, okay, there are so many footnotes in this that I had mm. to have a bookmark for where I was in the book itself. And then I put like a band's business card in the back where <laughs> the footnotes were. So I wouldn't have to keep like searching and wasting time trying to figure out where the footnotes were. So, you know, that's something that I'll have to maybe revisit here in the near future anyway. Mm. I w- wonder how they did that on the audiobook. That must have been really annoying. Yeah, I, I have no idea. But, you know, I found a used copy for like five or six bucks or something mm. like that. So I was like, all right, for that price, I'll just have a book that is very heavy and sits on my shelf <laughs> yeah, yeah. for a while. There you go. It's like a good bookend, even though it is a book. <laughs> yes, yes. And it also makes you look so smart having it there. <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, the way you have priced the book makes more sense because I've seen books where the ebook will be more than the physical book because it's really? gotten to the point where it's a mass market paperback, which those are, you know, that's Stephen King's status there where they can sell those for somewhere between six to 10 bucks. And then, you know, the publisher leaves the Kindle price point at like thirteen ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine, And I'm like, why would I pay more for a file yeah. than I would for an actual book? So, you know, more often than not with some of the big publishers, I find myself just, you know, either getting them at a used bookstore or just grabbing them on Amazon for the cheaper price. Even though I do really enjoy reading on my Kindle, it's like I like physical books enough to where I don't care. It's just, you know, I'm actually running out of room, literally, mm, yeah, for yeah. <laughs> physical books. I, I, I'll i say I'm having a big struggle too. So I, ha- I, I don't know the number of what I have, but I, you know, I'm also like, 
I've been into that. I know it's very trendy now to be into the minimalism thing. I've been into it for so long, and I'm just like, man, if I keep getting more books, like, I think, you know, with New York Rent, like, I always joke, it's like, you know, I live, I think they say that my neighborhood's the second most expensive neighborhood in America, and it's like, I pay so much rent for those books every month. <laughs> it's like, right, right. I'm like, I'm like, man, the idea of paying, like, I think I like did the math at one point that like I'd end up paying like $6,000 in the next 20 years for like how much space all my books take up. And I'm like, right. maybe I should just go Kindle and stuff. But then like there's also this thing and I talk about it in the book is like I have a lot of books that face out at me, like particularly under my TV that face out at me that give me thoughts to remember what I'm supposed to do with my life because I always say it's like, I'm the best at forgetting what my purpose is despite ha- thinking I have a purpose. So I try to keep them there to remind me. And I'm like, yeah, you know, the Kindle doesn't do that. Right. And I feel like, too, when you have books that you probably want to reference multiple times, it's mm-hmm. like if you have to go in your Kindle and search for the book and then click it and then, you know, do the go to. It's like I, I can just grab a book off the shelf and flip mm-hmm. through it so much faster than I could doing that. So that is, you know, one of the downsides to Kindle. But obviously, the big upside is no need for a bookshelf. You know, you could just have your Kindle with you all the time. And plus, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, get in bed, but I can't fall asleep. So I'll just read on my Kindle or something. And that's not something you can do with a book because you need to actually have the light on and everything, too. Yes. There are some pros and cons to a Kindle, as you know, there are for everything Mm -hmm. that we own. But I I think this book is definitely one that you could go either way with it because you've given that option to visit the website and get all of those extras that you would get within the Kindle copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm very adamant because I, I do read. Um, I'm probably a 50-50 Kindle dash uh, physical book reader. And I will say this too. I shouldn't even say Kindle. I read uh, on the app on my iPhone. Um, okay. And uh, – but – I want everybody to who does in the forex is like while I'm fifty fifty with that the other fifty I am is audiobooks so I want to make sure everybody who gets the thing gets the same experience now granted with the audiobook you get my weird voice which is not as good an experience <laughs> but uh, sorry for that I'm sure people will still enjoy it <laughs> and everything but uh, it, I. <laughs> I know we've gotten pretty off topic here, and that's totally my fault because we just like kind of get on these roles and go with them. But for this book, particularly, you mentioned taking four years to write it, which includes you taking your notes and everything like that. But why did you want to write a book that focused solely on creativity? Was it just because, like you said earlier, you didn't think there was a book that sort of combined that with the making of music in the way that you thought could be useful or was there sort of that plus some other reasons for it? So I didn't know I was writing a book on creativity and music when I started. I knew I was going to write a book on the mistakes I see musicians make making music because that's the majority of my been. I mean, that's really been my life's work. I've been doing that since I was 15 and I'm 39. So, um, I started doing that, and then it just kind of started becoming clear with, like, the stuff I was reading. I think it was, like, really kind of coincidental, too. I would read um, – it's my favorite book is uh, Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Berlin Johnson. Um, I was reading it for a second time, and I was like, you know, 
maybe this is more what no one knows. Because, like, what I started to notice particularly is, like, um, I often joke that, like, uh, a lot of my creativity comes from the fact that I go to bars three nights a week and I meet. I'm always at a bar and then I, like, run into somebody I've recorded or run somebody I know from the music business. And then I talk to somebody and they inevitably tell me something that sucks about their musical life, whether it's business or creative. I realized, like, every time I tell somebody stuff I know from the creativity books I know, they look at me and they're like, dude, this is amazing. I never knew that. Da, 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 da. And, like, I saw how helpful it was. I was like, it started to just be like that thing of, I'm like, maybe all these notes. Because, like, there really is, um, there's, like, a couple things in there that are blog posts I wrote in 2009. Uh, so, really, I could say I've been writing this since then, but I think that sounds kind of stupid. But, like, there's, like, a whole section on how you trust your gut and what that's like that is on MuseFormation uh, from literally this week, uh, 2009. And they're like the first blog posts I ever wrote. So it all just kind of slowly became clear what the book should be. And like, honestly, uh, I didn't even, I wouldn't have even said that this was a book solely on creativity until probably two summers ago uh, that it became really, really clear. And then only last year was it like, okay, I know exactly what this book is. But even when people would ask me what it was about until like maybe September, I'd be like, uh, it's about creativity and music, but that's all I can tell you. I have no idea really what, what it is. And then, whereas what you said back to me at the top of this episode, I'm like, that's exactly what it's about. There it is. And, <laughs> and it's like that funny thing. I, I still haven't, like when I'm writing ads for it, I still haven't figured out how to totally say what it is. Cause it goes to a lot of different places. Right. Well, you are welcome to quote me on that if you like. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I may do that. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned making it as a physical book was important to you, but you still get sort of the same cut from the Kindle mm -hmm. version of it. Why did you decide to do an audiobook on top of that? Was it just because you are a fan of audiobooks and you know people have been increasingly listening to those? Uh, it's also just that, I mean, this is really the truth. I, I know like when everybody, like with musicians, they get mocked when like, they're like, I just want people to hear my music, man. Like, that's all I care about. But a lot of why I did write this book is like, and the same thing with my last book is like, it gets tiring dealing with people who don't know what you know. And I want to make the world a better place. I want to hear the music get better. Like, I honestly, like, you know, it's annoying when I, a band makes a record then I'm like, oh, they didn't get this about record making, and that's why I can't listen to this record. And I feel like there's a lot of things in here that would make people's lives better. I mean, I mentioned at the top of it that, like, you know, I was a really depressed teenager, and a lot of that came from, like, I would buy, like, samplers, and there was no YouTube yet, and, like, I couldn't figure out how to do them and do the right creative things for my life, and... It'd make me insane, and it made me really depressed, and uh, I want to rid the world of that, so putting it in as many formats as I can uh, was really important to me. Yeah, and with this being a self-release, how did you go about getting the print edition of the book done? Is that just something you did through Amazon? I know they offer 
a service where they will print the books for you. And it's sort of, I don't know if it's necessarily a print on demand thing, or do you have a specific number printed and then you are selling them yourself on Amazon? So this is a really funny thing is, uh, so there's two print on demand companies left in the world. And then there's only one book distributor. That's a major distributor left because everybody's been run out of business. By Amazon. So (laughs) Amazon has CreateSpace, which is what their print-on-demand thing is, that will put it on Amazon, then you can order copies for yourself. And then there's another one from Ingram, which is the last book distributor, uh, called uh, Lightning Source. Um, I go through Lightning Source because it's a little bit more advantageous to getting your books into stores as opposed to just having it on Amazon. Now, with that said, with Get More Fans, one... 60% 60% of get more fan sales are ebook anyway, so it really doesn't matter. And when I say 60% of that, that's 98% of it being sold on Amazon. Um, right. And so, but with that said, it's like I really did want this everywhere, and the price is just about exactly the same. So it made more sense for me to deal with Lightning Source uh, for that. But that's basically like that's the big thing. But, uh, I will tell you, like, I did tons of consulting meetings with people who do self-release books. I talked to all the people. I write it all down. I'm actually going to be writing a lot of articles on it because, like, just like you were talking about writing a book, I like, this week's, like, that thing of, like, I feel like everybody I know who's, like, thinking about writing a book have been, like, the past two weeks, like, I pick your brain real fast about the, like, one or two things. And it's, like, so I'm going to write some big articles about, like, how I've done all this because I've learned a lot from uh, this one to the last one. Like, it's really funny, like, how much some of the – mistakes i made on get more fans not doing those on this book have already before i ever even see a paycheck from this really paid off in sales and uh reach already yeah definitely and right now on amazon it's the number one new release in songwriting so clearly you are doing something right and people do want to get a copy of this book and you know like i said there's still quite a bit of time before it comes out it's march 9th as we're recording this and it comes out on the 28th so you know that is something that's sort of always cool to see when it's like your book is doing so well before it's even come out because then you know how many people roughly are interested in it and you know that it was an idea that is going to pay off. Uh, That's awesome that you saw that because you reminded me. I read that when I was really drunk the other night and forgot it until you just said it. So that's kind of really (laughs) embarrassing. I'm like, like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that. So, but that thing, I, you know, but there, 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 I should say this too to, 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 to take myself down a peg. Uh, there's this funny thing with the number one new release and the number one in any category that, uh, basically categories are so microscopically done on Amazon that I think, uh, Gizmodo did like this prank where they like made a new category for a book and they showed that you can go to number one new release and they literally bought one copy. So I'm going to take myself down the peg and say, you know, that is the thing. But granted, songwriting is a little bit bigger uh, than that. But uh, right. it's it's nice to see. But it's also like Amazon could be pretty easily manipulated uh, with that. This is true. And they have it, you know, in different categories for every book. Because, you know, I follow Shea Serrano on Twitter. And he's always, you know talking about getting his book in the top five on Barnes and Noble. And, you know, that can mean something totally different than getting it in the, you know, top music category on Amazon. And it's like, there's so many different ways to sort of count sales and stuff for different places and, you know, give rankings to these books. But, you know, it's still something that I think 
a lot of people are sort of excited to see when their book hits at least some sort of milestone on any of these places, especially something as big as Amazon that has so many things you can buy. It's like, hey, someone actually bought my thing on here. It it, it astounds me. You know, even as somebody who's uh, worked on records that have sold millions of copies, uh, it's always astounding when it's the thing I did like that on my own. I'm like, oh, my God, people are buying this. This is so weird. Yeah. And, you know, my podcasts are by no means super popular in any or anything like that. And I'm just like, I'm even amazed, you know, like five people are willing to listen to me ramble on about things, let alone, you know, more than that for, you know, all of the episodes. It's so awesome, though, that we can all indulge our micro interests because I just think about like, you know, how shitty my life was as a teenager having to watch whatever was on HBO no matter how bad it was and not of my interests it was because there was no other options. And it's so great that we can all find people's voices who are interesting to us these days and that we'd rather be listening to. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I love talking all about music on this podcast and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the various guests I've had on since I've started doing this. But then, you know, because my interests are so much more than just music, I was like, okay, once my sports podcast ended, I was like, okay, I like so many different things. Why don't I just make a podcast and just have, you know, guests on and more often than not, it's, you know, the internet group of friends that I've made Mm -hmm. through being in music industry and stuff like that. So I've had James Shotwell on, I've had Jacob Tender on, but all of us have so many different interests that I was like, okay, I can do this. I can talk about Star Wars. I can talk about basketball. I can talk about so many different things that, you know, I just wanted a place to do that. And I was like, wow, people actually care what I think about any of these things. That's really amazing. <laughs> it's great. And I, I, I love that about um, as somebody who really likes lots of things that are outside the mainstream and uh, generally is bored with the mainstream. It's It's my favorite thing that it's finally way easier for me to avoid the mainstream and get what I want and um, be able to cower from the rest of the world in the little uh, hipster neighborhood I live in. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that covers it for, you know, what I have for you as far as noise creators and the book goes. I feel like you and I could probably yes. talk for a very long time and the listeners would just like <laughs> drop out at yes, some point. They'd totally. be like, they're talking about <laughs> way too much nonsense here. <laughs> nice. But thank you so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed this talk. Yeah. And I will definitely, you know, shoot some more podcast ideas your way and you know, maybe if you do another book, which I'm sure you will probably do, or when you do those articles. It's one of those things that uh, the, the, the the week that it comes out, every time somebody talks about next book, I'm like, oh, God, never again. But I know that, that, <laughs> that that'll change at some point. Right. Or, you know, when you finish those articles or whatever, maybe we can have you back on and sort of do a follow up to this since the book isn't quite out yet. But, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you, you as well. And- for our listeners, as I've already mentioned, it's amazing you guys listen to me talk about anything as it is, but thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.